the challenge of being mortal is I want to stop time and just catch up with every single one of you, and, um, but I can't. And what I really want you to do, and what I'm really most grateful for, uh, beyond being back with you, is this incredible staff that has um, just carried a burden that I usually share with them for the summer without me. And they have served, and what's great is this church has not missed a beat in my absence. People are like, Gary, who? Like, who are you? And um, that's the way I, I'd want it. I love that we're not built on a personality or a person, but on the Lord Jesus and the under-shepherds here. So would you please give a welcome, a thank you to this amazing staff that has been there. I agree. Amazing. Well, what I want to do is try to put into words something so holy and um, so profound that language won't even begin to capture it. I want to try to capture 90 days worth of time away from you in 30 minutes. Uh, try that on for size. Um, but what I'm going to do is share really the, the main lessons God taught me and uh, while I was away from, uh, from you. And our church gives sabbaticals to their pastors. And uh, if you're here and uh, I have not met you, you're here since I've been here. Uh, I'm starting my 20th year here at PCC. And it's because of that stuff. Oh, you don't know what's coming, so stop clapping. Uh, but it's because of that sabbatical policy that's kept me fresh. I was at a conference up in Oregon with a guy that's been a pastor 13 years in the same location. He's like, how do you do it for 20? And I just said, our church is great with their pastors and, uh, you know, gives me time away. So um, let me pray for us, and then we'll dig in. I'm going to be tied to my notes uh, more than normal because I really want to get out what I need to get out. Uh, so just you track with me will be good. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for this community. Thank you for your faithfulness over 65 years in this, uh, this body of followers of yours. I love them and I love you and I thank you that you called us to be together. God, would you give me wisdom and give all of us insight and as we prayed this morning, um, conviction from your Holy Spirit. I thank you that in you, we stand as uh, people who are not condemned. And so in light of that, I pray against shame, but I pray for conviction. And that you would uh, take this message where you want it to go and penetrate hearts, mine included, with your word. Pray this in Christ's name. Everyone said, amen. On June 1st, I sat down at a place I never expected to be, Jack London Square in Oakland. You need to know I love Oakland. Oakland is my second home. I grew up in Marin, but my dad's company was in Oakland, and I spent a lot of my life, my first job was in Oakland, and my dad taught me to love that city long before uh, it was cool now to love the city of Oakland. Uh, we were there, and uh, I hoped that I would be in western Marin on the first day of my sabbatical with a mentor I called him Pacers, a pacer of mine, who's the healthiest man I know. He's an oncologist, 76 years old, and I wanted to walk with him and have him do a diagnostic of my life, literally medically as well as emotionally, spiritually, physically. But because of a number of external factors I won't get into, there I am in Oakland. My plans had completely changed instead of Western Marin, preparing to take care of some family business. And the chaos and commotion of the urban surroundings, and I'm not down, I told you I love Oakland, and there's times I love that chaos and commotion. But that day it mirrored my interior life. Here's what I wrote the first day of my sabbatical. 
The last place I wanted, and by the way, I, I was journaling. So, and if you're not a journaler, no big deal. Jesus wasn't either. Uh, so you don't have to worry about that. It's not like the high level of spirituality, but this is just mental ink for me fades quickly. So this is what I do. The last place I saw myself on day one is here in Oakland. I'm struck this morning by the frenetic state of my soul. A calming is needed. Perhaps there's a direct correlation between the anxiety within me and the mindless pace I've been keeping to this point. The impact of my hurried pace is evident. I have external stress, external irritability, a lack of patience, a lack of being present. The most common phrase in my parenting this season has been, hurry up. If I were to die today, maybe my daughters would eulogize me this way. Dad lived life in a hurry. And on my tombstone, maybe they engrave, he reached the end of his life way ahead of time. (laughs) How is it I can keep this crazy pace and at the same time follow a savior who walked everywhere? I hear your invitation. Come apart and walk with me. Jesus, I'm so gifted at leading others to you. This summer, will you lead me back to your heart? See, my interior life seemed to be swirling around like a snow globe that was continually being shaken. I was overextended and underconnected. I wondered that morning, God, how are you going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? I come to this platform today not with tablets of stone. Some people expect that when your lead pastor is on sabbatical. With the future of our church. Uh, Not because I haven't been on the mountain communing with God. I have had such rich times with Jesus, literally on a mountain. Uh, I can understand a little better what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12. It was so deep, so holy, so intimate. I don't know if I was in the spirit in heaven or on earth as a mortal. I've had that kind of taste of communion with God. Uh, nor because we don't have a strategic plan for our future. I'm not holding something because we don't have it. We've got a plan, and it's amazing. And come back next week. We'll start to let you in on the clear direction God is leading us in the mission of PCC. Brace yourselves. It's going to be incredible. Uh, But I simply want to invite you on this walk through my summer, sharing passages that I uh, and the primary lesson I gleaned from my sabbatical. Okay? We good? Okay, my sabbatical journey started three years ago when a pacer, a primary pacer in my life, there's a picture of him, his name's Jim. He was actually here last spring doing a marriage seminar. Uh, he always gives me a book, best read of my year. Three years ago, he placed this book in my hands, Chasing Francis. Uh, now, honestly, when I first saw this, I kind of pushed back, partly due to my religious upbringing. And when I became a Christian at age 18, I, I ignorantly left all my past behind. Uh, But I cracked open the book on a summer vacation, and I still remember reading it for the first time. I've read this book three times. I would just tell you, honestly, outside of the Word of God, this is probably the most profound book that's impacted my life in the last five years. The journey accelerated 18 months ago when I was given a grant from a foundation to go chase Francis in Assisi. And in addition to the Assisi study, the grant included our family heading to Europe to have some time of R&R and to connect with my family. Um, Most of my family were dual citizens, my daughter and I, my daughters and I. And we have family in Luca, and we just connected with them, and among other things, it was so rich. But then I put my family on a a plane, and they left, and I went to Assisi with a theory and a research project. 
wondering if there's parallels between Francis's ministry in the affluent city of Assisi in the 13th century and my ministry on the peninsula in the 21st. See, if you don't know about Francis, uh, he is the most written about human being outside of Jesus Christ, who's a God-man. He's the most written about human being on the planet. More ink has been given to this man than any other man. When Time Magazine in 1999 did their top 10 individuals of the millennium, you know, they had people you would expect, Michelangelo, Galileo, Edison, and they had Francis. Uh, he was able, through humility and through a recapturing of the gospel, to reform the church in the 13th century without splitting it. That's why they call him the first Protestant. And I thought maybe there's something in his life and why I'm resonating so deeply with this uh, saint. I love missionary biographies. Maybe there's something there for me in the 21st century. Little did I know God had much more in store for me than a research project. He brought me to Assisi to remind me of my father's business. I grew up in a family business. Uh, my dad had hoped I'd take over the family business. I knew all about the family business, just like Francis had a family business that he walked away from to pursue ministry. I walked away from the family business to pursue ministry. But God said, I have other business that you've walked away from too. And I brought you here to remind you and renew your mind about what it means to have a simplicity and purity of devotion to me. Why don't you open your Bibles? Uh, it was read so well by Scott to Luke chapter 2. And let's look about the Father's business and let me start from there in the scriptures and build out where God launched me from. And we don't have much detail of Jesus' early life in the Gospels, uh, but in our passage we do find the one story of Jesus at age 12. Jesus has a adolescent. He's at the Passover festival in Jerusalem, and I know you've been going through the Psalms of Ascent. I've been going through the Psalms of Ascent as well in a devotional time, and the staff has done an amazing job of unpacking that. Uh, to get to the Passover festival in this story, the family of Jesus would be reading those very Psalms that we've been studying all summer long. And they'd have renewal of relationships. There'd be great feasting. These three festivals around the Jewish calendar were everything for the Jewish people. It was a time to gather together and celebrate and have a feast and enjoy and talk about the goodness of God. Now, it was time, though, to leave. So they pulled up their tent stakes to go back home. And thinking that Jesus uh, was with his cousins in a caravan wagon, they didn't travel by themselves. They'd go in caravans. It was safer that way. Joseph and Mary pulled up tent stakes and went home for three days, not knowing Jesus was back in Jerusalem. Now, let me ask every parent in this room, what would go through your mind if you were three days' journey from a large metropolitan city and you knew you left your 12-year-old back there by themselves. Yeah, my mind too. Let's pick it up in verse 43. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stood behind, stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. So suddenly, the face of Jesus appears on milk cartons, right, missing all over Jerusalem. They're looking all over the place for him. And then some informant comes to Mary and says, there's a young kid in the temple. And Mary goes, that's him. And goes right to the temple. Verse 48, I think a lot of parents can resonate with, we all can resonate, but as a dad of five daughters, this has given me so much hope 
in my walk with God and my parenting journey. When his parents saw him, they were, what's that next word? Astonished. So the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in a different language. This was written in Greek. The word astonished literally means to be out of their mind. Uh, It literally means to be so astounded to nearly lose one's mental composure. Can any parents of teenagers, like, agree with that? Like, have you been there? Can you understand that? Right. What helps me is to go, man, they were the parents of the perfect teenager, right? And they still were out of their mind. There's hope for me. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I, this is what happens with parents of teenagers, anxiety, have been anxiously searching for you. And with an uncanny calmness not usually found in adolescence, Jesus replies, Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I, and these next two words are critical to Luke's gospel, and they're critical to my journey on my sabbatical, and I bet they're critical to your life too. Luke will put these two words together 40 times in his gospel. These are the first recorded words of Jesus in Luke's gospel, and they're there for a reason. Had to. Jesus is saying to his mother something that I had lost a long time ago. Mom, I've got priorities. Priority one for my life, reveal the Father's heart. I had to be here because that's a greater priority than being in a caravan going back to the Galilee. Can I ask you a question right from the start? Because you want the bottom line when someone says, oh, I hear Gary's back, Gary's back. What did God do on a sabbatical? Just give him a two-word answer. Had to. God told Gary, he's got to live with priorities. This church has a Savior, and Gary is not it. He can't be all things to all people. I cannot be all things to all people. Here's my question. What are your had to's? And maybe a more important question is this. What do you base that on? How do you know what to say no to? And what to say yes to? What is your true north? What is the authority in your life that's governing what you're about? See, Jesus knew that. In John 13, I think it is. uh, I think it is John 13. Right before he got up to wash the disciples' feet, there's this line in John 13 that says, Jesus knowing the Father had committed all things to him, knowing where he had come from and where he was going, see, that's his calibration, got up to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus had a had to because he knew who he was. And in the first words of the Gospel of Luke, Luke is laying out, Jesus lived by priorities. That was hard for me. Because I was trying to live my life not by priorities. I'll let that out a little more in a few minutes. Fast forward with me now to July 3rd, 2016. I went from June 1st, now we're at July 3rd. It's my first Sunday in Assisi. And um, four kilometers outside of Assisi is this place. That's my video walking. I wish you could hear. I mean, there's birds chirping. It's just this beautiful place. Think of Hutterd Park on steroids. It's called the Carcheri. It's where Francis would go to commune with Jesus. He'd spend days, weeks there with the word, praying, in solitude, sleeping in caves. Because, ah, there we go. Is that the volume? Ah, you got it. Can you do that again? (laughs) Hang on, we'll get this back. 
because he really believed that all creation brought glory to God. Listen to this. Can you turn? Oh, in a phone. That's not on. Is that just classic? That is awesome. I don't even know how to recover from that. So here's the deal, honestly, but let me recover. Grace to whoever that is. Um, the night before, I had a jarring dream. I had, and I, I'm not, uh, I had a recurring dream for 10 years. I've had this recurring dream. It's a nightmare, really. And I had it the night before that morning in the Carcheri. And I had heard there's a worshiping community. It was my first Sunday, and I, I booked it up there at 6.30 in the morning to worship with this monastic community and to get with God and wrestle with him and go, what is this dream all about? And it was on that uh, trail in the Carcheri that, that God said, you know what? Maybe I don't have you here to do a research project. Maybe I have you here to recapture something much more important. So after worshiping with the community, as I sat down with God and dealt with that dream, God gave me a clear vision of what that dream was about in my life, and it wasn't good. God revealed to me that I had a divided heart. Uh, that really, and it's not a big deal, it is to God, but it wasn't to me at that point. It became a big deal because I saw what God felt over my divided heart. See, in my walking with the Lord for 33 years, I'd become okay with acceptable sin. Not egregious stuff, at least in my mind. I call it acceptable because compared to other people, I was doing okay. But compared to God, this acceptable sin was not going to move forward with me. Acceptable sin like trying to be all things to all people. Acceptable sin like gluttony. Acceptable sin like keeping an immoral pace that not even Jesus kept. Acceptable sin like trying to create an image, not purposely, but just because I fear people and want your approval, and I'll unbuild, unpack that in a little bit. Trying to appear in a way that I really am not at the core. Acceptable sin even to the degree of lust, not to the point of like going towards pornography or things like that. Uh, and if that's you, I would just tell you, uh, we can get you help in those areas so you do not have to engage in the dehumanizing act of pornographic um, imagery. But just minor lust, that's just okay. God used this dream to reveal to me those acceptable sins, the way I treat my wife, the way I treat my daughters, things like that, and said, you know what? Your heart's divided. Because what Jesus taught was this. Before, long before sin is external and expressed, it's internal and accepted. And God said, let's dig deep up here. So after that first morning, I was journaling away. God said, you know what? Why don't we meet up here every morning? I said, but it's four kilometers uphill. And Jesus said, I look forward to seeing you. Here's my journal from July 3rd, that Sunday morning. The promise of abundant life is so appealing to me, Jesus, but I don't have time for it. Busy is my enemy, and it's the enemy of the abundant life and the relationships you want me to build. As a God-man, your pace on earth was, not, was so relaxed. Not, uh, there's not one instance in Scripture of you running how is it you did it all, yet you said no to so much? You were never a slave to time, 
that you were always on time. You stopped to love people. You pulled away often. You are about your father's business, not people's expectations. If I'm going to be about the father's business, I'm going to let some people down. But what's the alternative? I've lived within it, and it's anything but abundant for me. Jesus, you never said the greatest commandment was to get more done. You told me the greatest commandment was to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So in that hill in the Karcheri, and by the way, I, I, this is me. I picked flowers from that area and put them in my journal just to remind me that it was a real place and a real uh, space. So um, every morning I would start my day in the Karcheri with the Bible open, my journal open, listening to Jesus in solitude. And it was so rich. And God gave me two primary lessons that I'm going to bring back to you and remind you of in my life, and maybe they're good for you. Here's the first. Turn to page two, please. The first is the value of obedience. The value of obedience. See, here's the bottom line, men and women. Each one of us has got to live under the authority. It's the way we were made. We live under the authority of something or someone. Who's your authority? Uh, where I've come to in my place with this divided heart, I could have pushed back, but I came to a place where I said, Jesus, if your word says it, I've just got to obey it. And that's the secret to the life of Francis. Francis in the 13th century, see if this sounds familiar, lived in a time when the church was debating the word of God. The church. The church was saying, does it really say this? I think it says that. It doesn't mean that. Oh, no, it can't mean that. And while they were debating, Francis had this revival in his heart, and he said to the church leaders, you keep debating, I'm just going to obey it. And it changed everything for him and for the church, ultimately. See, when the church preached in Latin in a language that people couldn't understand, Francis disobeyed the church and preached in Italian, the language of the people, and parenthetically, the language of heaven. Uh, when the church would just preach in their high pulpits Francis went to haystacks and walked the land when the church wouldn't preach to illiterate people or people who couldn't read you know what Francis did? he started the first nativity because he wanted people to see the incarnation if they couldn't read it in their bible Francis did everything he could to get the word to the people because the word of God does the work of God the word of God does the work of God. And I knew in my life, just that's where the hope started to well up, thinking, oh my gosh, as the word comes in me and I just obey it, quit debating it, obey it, wow, a work of God can be done in me. At the end of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he closed with an illustration. Every good preacher knows. They call it a haymaker, actually. Your closing sermon drives it home, pulls it all together, and puts it out in a product that people can remember. Jesus' haymaker was a story about two builders who both got permits to build houses. One builder obeyed the permit and built and did the hard work to get to the bedrock and put this foundation on the rock. Matthew chapter 7, 24 to 29. The other builder had the permit but out of convenience didn't obey the permit and built his house on the sand to his or her demise. The reality in my life, God said, you feel sorrow because in each one of those areas, you thought you knew better than my word. You thought you'd be the only follower of Christ in all of history who go contrary to my word and live abundantly. Gary, I haven't given you my word to 
trap you and to confine you. I gave you my word to free you. Every day after the carcere, I'd go to a different part of Assisi and do more study there and work on that project I was telling you about. My favorite place to go was this place. It's the Church of San Rufino. Um, and the Church of San Rufino, it'll come up in a minute. There it is. Um, Rufino was the first missionary to Assisi, third century. And you know what obedience cost Rufino? His life. The gratitude that the uh, people in Rufino gave to, uh, in Assisi gave to Rufino was they tied a rock around his neck and threw him in the sea, and he drowned to death. So the people in building the church that Francis would worship at and others would worship at thought, what's a statue that we can put as people enter into these doors? And they chose this one. It's a thousand years old. It's a statue, and it's been worn away and weathered in time. But it's a statue of a lion eating the head of a Christian. Because they wanted everyone coming into church to understand our faith is one that costs. And the only greater cost in obedience, even that, is the cost actually of disobedience. All you got to do is look at our, our home pages and our headlines and we see the dehumanizing effect of people who just, and I've been there, right? That's why we have grace, but who go contrary to the word of God. So the first thing God told me is this. I thought I was okay with 95% obedience. You know, I'm doing pretty good. God said, mm, I love you. There's grace for you. Nothing will ever change my love for you. But 95% obedience to my word is 5% short of my will. I'll never get it 100% this side of eternity. But I should never quit striving. So obedience is the first thing I bring to you. And for Francis, it was obedience in community. He valued community and, and confessed his sin one to another, not for forgiveness, but for what James said, for healing. It's the only thing that will usher in greater obedience. The second thing, quickly, is a purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 11.3. Just look in your notes for the sake of time. The Apostle Paul says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your mind may somehow be led astray. The force of that word is much stronger in that original Greek language. It's literally to be pulled away, to be lured in a strong way. Remember, sin is internal and accepted long before it's external and expressed. So now Paul's going right at the core that creates the sin, our thinking. And he says, your minds have been led astray, deceived. How? What have we been led astray from? From your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Breathe deep, everybody. Doesn't that sound good? Purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. I wrestled with this. I wrestled with this a lot because I said, God, how do I live purity in, uh, in a purity and simplicity of devotion to you on the peninsula? How is it that you can bring this about? And God said, let me teach you a word. I want to teach it to you. Write it down. Okay, you ready? No. Yes. <laughs> try that, okay? Let's try it. One, two, three. No. Okay, come on, say it with four. That's how I always said no before sabbatical, okay? Um, let's say it with force. One, two, three. No. 
No. All right. Now let's do it in Spanish. One, two, three. No. See, you're bilingual. Good job. No. Yes. Good job. Yes, I love that. I perform weddings. I did one this summer. And whenever I do the ring ceremony and I hand the ring to the groom and to the bride, I say to them before I give it, this ring represents an unconditional yes to that woman or to that man. Unconditional. But to protect that unconditional yes, you have to make an unconditional to lesser things. It's those unconditional no's that protect the purity of the yes. And that's been the truth in my marriage. In my, you know, 25 years later, we have a growing marriage. Because we fought and said no, and there's been a lot of grace exchanged and what have you. Jesus reminded me of that up in the Karcheri and said, you've got to say no to lesser things. So here's what I'm saying no to. I'm saying no to random yeses. Random yeses. God's called me to evaluate what's beneath my yes. I did a lot of work up there. See, busyness for me is not a status symbol. It's a heart issue. My problem is not just a disordered schedule, but a disordered heart fueled by emotional brokenness. Really, it's an insecurity. Can I let you into my, like, a deep thing in me? Can I do that? Is this safe? Are we safe? Okay. Safe for three of us. That's good. No, I'm just kidding. I've struggled my whole life with questions like, am I good enough? Am I liked enough? Am I significant enough? My whole life. And every yes I give brings a validation to those questions. Because I think by pleasing you, the answer's yes. God's solution? Let me give you a whole new identity. A kingdom identity as my child. Let me give you a clear direction about the family business. And let me give you clear directions to govern your yes and no so you can focus on the family business. The second thing I'm saying no to is this. Here's a new word for most of you. Technoference. Technoference. Ann and I were out to dinner on Wednesday night, and uh, we saw this, this table of eight sit down. Um, its table of eight had two adults, two sets of adults, and four children. I kid you not, the minute the kids sat down, out came the screens. And for the whole dinner, as we were looking over there, we saw the whole kids while the parents were talking in this. It's like this joke that I found on the internet. It says this, do you mind if I strap your phone to my forehead so I can pretend you're looking at me when I talk? Anyone else struggle with technoference? Right, we just had you take out your cell phone in church. I'm not down on cell phones, but for me, I just got to tell you, being untethered to this thing has been so life-giving this summer, completely for me, because of my proclivities, off social media, no tweeting. I did nothing. I don't even know what's on my Facebook account for three months. It's been so good for me. And I know it's hurt my wife and daughters being so tethered and so available by this thing. As a matter of fact, I know there's a disproportionate correlation between my being yoked to my device and being yoked to Jesus. So my clear call on sabbatical from the Lord was this. It's time to come back to Jesus, pure and simple. Here's my last journal entry. Uh, not my last, but from April 26th. Uh, I was on the Oregon coast, and here's what I wrote. And then we'll wrap this up and go to communion. 
stop believing it's too late. The whole Bible states this axiom. It's not where you start, but what you become that matters. And I just wrote down characters. Think of Jonah. He started out running away from God, but he finished leading one of the greatest revivals in all the Old Testament. Think of Thomas, Jesus' disciple. He started out racked with doubt. Legend says he ended up taking the gospel to India. Think of Moses. He started out being a failure, a murderer. He ended up delivering two million people into the promised land. Think of Jacob. He started out being a liar. He ended up being a leader. Timothy started out shy, insecure, fearful, not a public speaker. He ends up being the Apostle Paul's right-hand man, pastoring one of the greatest churches in the New Testament, the church of Ephesus. Think of Paul. He started out as a terrorist. He goes on to write a majority of the New Testament. Think of Peter. He started out arrogant, loudmouthed. He threw Jesus under the bus. He ended up being the primary leader of the early church. And then I wrote, and if you think it's too late for you, because that's what I was wrestling with, think of Lazarus. He started out dead. (laughs) He ended up coming back to life, and we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. It's not too late for you, Gary, because God's alive, and he's committed to your becoming the best version of you possible. That's my journey. And that's what we're uh, coming back to and I'm looking forward to leading us to. Let me close this in prayer and let me guide us to the communion table. I wonder where God drew you as I shared my journey. I wonder what aspect of it. Maybe you can resonate with the interior life and the soul that's frenetic and shaking. Jesus wants to meet you there. He doesn't have to take you halfway around the world to Assisi to do work on your heart. Maybe you can relate when I said saying and being okay with acceptable sin. Jesus loves you and wants to meet you there. He's not turned off by your sin. He went to the cross to pay for it. He loves you. But he invites you to agree with him that this is not okay. And to bring it into a faith-filled, Christ-centered, grace-filled community where you can confess that to him and to others and start to experience healing. Maybe it's the area of saying no. You're just saying yes to too much. Jesus invites you and loves you in that place and says, I've got the family business and your part in it. Meet me and let me share with you so you have a true north, so you know what to say yes to and what to say no to. Whatever it is, can I invite you to commune with Jesus and do business with him before you leave the sanctuary? It's one of the beauties, and actually the thing I miss most on my sabbatical was the rhythm of beginning my week worshiping together and coming to this place where I get a whack on the side of the head and say, oh yeah, oh yeah. Forgive me. Let's start anew. So Jesus, I pray you would do that in my friends' lives, in my family's life. I pray that you do that in my life. As we come to this table of representing your broken body and your shed blood, I pray we would hear your still, soft voice speaking love over us, but also calling us, convicting us, calling us to newness and to leave some things behind. May you be glorified. 
so we don't just give a nod to a sermon you didn't want that at the Sermon on the Mount you don't want that today you wanted life change I pray for that, woo us we pray this in Christ's name everyone said Listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.